Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast. I'm your host, Trey Walsh, and today we have an amazing guest for you. Uh, we have Jameson Lopp on the podcast and really excited to have him on. He was hugely instrumental in my own journey into Bitcoin and understanding all things privacy, tech, uh, as well as a wealth of knowledge um, through his articles that he's written and his own company, Casa, as well. So we discussed uh, a lot of things in Bitcoin, what it's been like being in the Bitcoin ecosystem the past 10 years. We've talked about privacy and tech. We talked about uh, Bitcoin culture stuff and his Bitcoin Maxi article and a host of other things, including some of his own background. So I really think you'll enjoy this episode uh, and encourage you to look into, you know, his own articles, his own research and writings and things like that, which you can find in the show notes uh, through his his website and following along on social media to uh, Jameson. So really hope you enjoy this episode. As always, if you have any questions or feedback for us, uh, all is welcome. Please feel free to reach out to us at hello at progressivebitcoiner.com. And we're continuing to run those affiliate promo links for Jason Meyer's book, A Progressive's Case for Bitcoin, as well as through SAS Mining uh, for their renewable uh, Bitcoin mining. Uh, both uh, companies through Bitcoin Magazine and SAS Mining that I really love and appreciate. So if you want to check those out, those are going to be in the show notes as well. Um, and hope you enjoy the episode and we'll see you again next week. Hey, Jameson, welcome to the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast. How's it going? Not bad. Glad to be here. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for jumping on. Um, so, you know, we revamped the podcast. We've had two official, you know, a few re- releases so far um, and super thrilled that, that you're jumping on. And one of the reasons that I really wanted to have you on the podcast in general and, you know, our target audience is a bit more mainstream, a bit more ideally folks from the left that might not even know about Bitcoin. That's kind of the goal. It's still a Bitcoin podcast, so it's still, you know, got Bitcoiners listening, but I'd love for folks from the left who are curious to come on. And I really like your takes on privacy, on tech, on, you know, what are some of the things that we shouldn't necessarily compromise on and why should folks care about these things? And I think there's a massive gap from the left when it comes to two things like this. So that's that's one of the reasons I was really excited to to have you come on the podcast. Um, you know, I listened recently to your talk as well. I think you were at the Bitcoin conference um, with Robert Breedlove. Some folks from my audience might not listen to that podcast, right? So it's kind of, you know, getting some of those similar things, but also mixing it up. Um, but for folks that don't don't know you or don't know about you, um, what's a what's a quick summary? You know, who you are, what you do, how long you've been in the space, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's been a decade now for me. Um, I'm a computer scientist by trade. I got interested in Bitcoin from reading about it on nerdy websites like Slashdot back in the day. And um, basically, I ignored it for a few years, uh, like I think most people do. And it kept coming back, kept coming back. And finally, I read the white paper. And that's when it blew my mind as a computer scientist, like seeing the elegant but completely backwards way that this problem was solved like i never would have tried to solve the the double spending problem the byzantine generals problem in the way that satoshi did because it's just it's incredibly inefficient and it goes against all of my training as a software engineer so you know that blew my mind i started doing a few open source projects and then within a year um, i was so hooked on it that i was like you know what I might as well try to get paid to do this because I'm spending all of my my free time on it. Uh, so I went full time in early 2015, and and really since then have 
spent the past eight years just working on building wallets and building you know, private key management software and infrastructure and helping with the best practices and the standards around that because uh, you know, while the space has really exploded in complexity and a lot of people are doing really cutting edge stuff, um, I think that it, you know, it all still rests on this foundation of letting people be able to and be confident in managing the private keys and you know having self custody and really the empowerment aspect empowering yourselves through the private keys in order to unlock and access all of these interesting uh, technological functions that are coming along so you know that's the sort of tech side of it um I don't know if you want my political background as well because that's uh, quite varied <laughs> yeah yeah go for it why not uh, yeah, so you know, I'm a a, a good old boy, uh, North Carolina, uh, probably ten generation North yeah. Carolinian. Um, you know, my Couldn't lineage. Couldn't tell by was, the uh, license plate <laughs> behind you there. So yeah, my lineage yeah. was traced back to I think the uh, 1600s by my grandfather. Wow. But um, I'm from Virginia feel, myself, so similar lineage. So just just across the line there. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I was raised extremely conservative, you know, uh, religious household, um, was really indoctrinated into that. And, uh, you know, I, I voted for, I think, uh, George W. Bush was my first like presidential election, like when I was still in college. But then I went to the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, third generation graduate from there extremely liberal institution. And so I, uh, I really swung the other way, ended up voting for Obama in 2008, because I was like, Oh, this is, you know, something different, you know, hope and change, I can, I can really buy into this. And, and then, you know, I observed what happened over the next four years. And I was like, wait a minute, why is he still bombing all of these people? Like, why are we still engaged in all these wars with people that I don't have any problems with? And so, you know, became disillusioned there as well. And I think I ended up voting for Gary Johnson, the libertarian candidate uh, in 2012, kind of a protest vote. Obviously, I, I knew like libertarian candidates not going to win. Uh, and then that was the last time I voted. Like, I just I don't even vote anymore. Um, I believe that the best use of my time is to use my skills as a technologist to help people empower themselves with you know the stuff that we're going to be talking about today. Um, you know, d democracy and republics in general, it's, it's interesting governance. But to be quite honest, I find the, the governance of Bitcoin and these new systems to be far more interesting. Yeah. So let's, you know, we, we exchanged some emails and you mentioned that's one of the things could be interesting to get into. So, you know, let's talk about that a little bit. And, you know, you can, we can go 30,000 foot kind of explaining to someone who might not even understand the first thing about cypherpunks, Bitcoin, cryptography, any of the landscape and then go down deeper if you'd like. But, you know, when you say that governance structure and comparing the two worlds, because I'm I'm starting to get there myself, um, been a, a lifelong Democrat voter um, and, you know, grew up grew up in the South conservative as well and kind of shifted after after college, actually. So, you know, for me, I'm also seeing year after year, the same things are happening, the same issues, the same wars, regardless of political candidates one of the reasons I love Bitcoin so much is like, this might actually help fix some of these things or, or start to unwind some of this mess so we can address maybe some of these other things, right? So I'm kind of in a similar boat of where I'm starting to just separate those two worlds and say, you know, what, what can I do to actually 
make some change because this system doesn't seem to be working. So when you talk about governance, can you can you explain a bit uh, what, what you mean by that? When we talk about governance, we talk about you know any sort of organization that has to have uh, some way of really maintaining its cohesiveness over time as humans you know, join and depart that organization, right? There has to be some sort of uh, structure uh, that, that sort of uh, maintains a, a, a semblance of stability. Uh, as much as you know, we can hate on uh, the many, many problems with governance in America, it is still, I think, objectively better than many, many other countries that you know, have far less stability and uh, you know transition of power uh, between different people and, and parties, and um, you know the traditional way that we think of governance is usually hierarchical structures, and this is a very logical thing, a, w- a logical way for humans to organize themselves. This is this happens both at the sort of individual organization level and at the higher level of you know, society and civilization is you know, the way that we advance civilization is through specialization. And you know, the result of that is that uh, people watching this podcast today probably don't spend a meaningful portion of their lives worrying about you know where the food on their table is going to come from and you know the reason for that is that we outsource that and then really we outsource many 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 aspects of our lives these days to specialists um, you know you probably don't work on your own plumbing or electrical or other issues with your house or your car or whatever even though technically you could if you put in the time and effort and resources it's just you don't you don't have the same leverage. The, the specializing in one specific thing allows you to have a much higher level of efficiency and output and leverage, and, and therefore it's better you know, economically for you to get paid money to do that one thing because it's more valuable than it is for you to you know, become a, a sort of generalist tradesman uh, where you know how to do everything uh, yourself. Because you're you're just not gonna be able to do things as quickly as someone who spends you know their entire life doing that one thing, and and so this is logical from an economic perspective. It it has allowed us to you know create incredibly complex civilization and you know advance technology at an insane rate. But the downside and what people tend not to notice or think about because it just sort of happens in the background is that it introduces a lot of fragility. You know, to put it in the context of this space, it introduces a lot of centralization. Uh, the specialization is centralization. And so you, you end up you know, relying upon a lot of trusted third parties from many different aspects of your life. So you know, one uh, simple example of that is now, um, you know, especially if you get into the sort of prepper community or you talk about you know, how do I... Uh, how do I survive if there's some major catastrophe? Something that comes up very often that you hear about is the, uh, the sort of three-day supply chain problem. It's like we've created an economy that's incredibly efficient in transporting goods around. So we have all of these just-in-time supply chains. So you, you, know, you always have fresh food getting delivered to your grocery store. Well, you know, if that system shuts down, if those trucks stop driving, if those uh, those cargo ships stop running, as we kind of saw happen, uh, you know, during the pandemic a little bit, major, major, uh, 
first and second order effects happen. And a lot of people are not well positioned to you know, be able to ride out those kinds of disruptions. So we have a kind of weird balance to strike. And I, I'm mainly focused on you know, trying to improve my self-sovereignty and trying to help other people improve their self-sovereignty. So at least within the context of Bitcoin, we mainly do that within you know, finance and the banking system. Um, but you know, there are certainly many other aspects of your life that you can apply the same thing to. So from the governance perspective, you know, we have highly centralized uh, governing parties now. I already spoke about you know, the sort of third party candidates basically being just a protest uh, vote because of all of the power that has been concentrated within like, the, the Democrats and the Republicans and anyone else who doesn't you know, toe the party line of, of one of those major parties doesn't really have much of a chance, which is unfortunate. Then if you look at the way that you know, Bitcoin itself as a system is governed, it's actually uh, completely flipped on its head. And so instead of having this you know, top-down hierarchical organization, it's actually a, a bottom-up, uh, organically grown type of consensus system. So when you're operating on the Bitcoin network, you operate your node, you validate the rules that you agree to, but you aren't voting on anything. You know, there, there is no concept of like... A, majority wins other than kind of with the hash rate that's a special case it doesn't really get to decide the rules and and so instead we have this uh, system that it really i think can be best described as anarchy because it is a system of rules without rulers so instead we have to kind of fumble around and, and figure out you know how how does the uh, the overlap of everybody running their own rule systems coalesce into this thing that we call Bitcoin. And usually that's extremely stable, though sometimes, you know, for example, during the 2017 era fork wars, it can get a bit less stable and more dramatic. There's a lot there. I'll, I'll start with, again, trying to, you know, because I've heard similar things you've said on other podcasts and your articles, but trying to pivot a bit more to this potential audience. Why should progressives and those on the left care about this. So me speaking for myself as a progressive, as someone on the left, I really care about this. But um, a lot of those on the left, I think, don't think about this as much or aren't as concerned about this. So you say things like anarchical, anarchical system, centralization, Bitcoin, those are like trigger words um, for, for the left in a lot of ways. Um, in general, a lot of people just don't know much about it, period. But for those that do, some have decided those things and associations are bad. So from a progressive's perspective, if you were to articulate why a progressive should care about this versus a libertarian or conservative who might naturally be skeptical of those things. And, and again, there's, there's issues there, right? With you, you have the same kind of worship of monarchy in a different way. Um, why should those on the left care about care about this and want to advocate for a system that you described? So, you know, I, I think this actually applies to everyone. Um, but one of the ways that I look at it is, um, and this is why I generally, I, I look at politics from a sort of arm's length amused standpoint. Like I don't really want to get too involved in politics. Um, it's because 
the the political games that our our systems have developed into is basically one of uh, rug pulling is the best way I can describe it in terms of of like Bitcoin and the crypto ecosystem because it is a winner take all type of battle right it's um whoever's candidate or whoever's party wins uh, the votes they are the ones who have all of the power there's no you know like split ratio of power based on the percentage of votes you got or any any you know more complex like we don't even do ranked choice voting in america you know so um this the stability i think which is what makes this so much more appealing in that you know if you are quote unquote sovereign in whatever system you're using you don't have to worry about a bunch of other people banding together and basically deciding to change the rules of the system out from under you so you know this is why bitcoin as a system is incredibly stable there is a lot of you know drama and political esque you know debate within the system, but there's not the same undercurrent of I can rug pull you and change the rules if I gain you know a sufficient quota of votes. So you know that empowerment you, know, you could frame it in a number of different ways, but you know from a, a progressive perspective, you know perhaps you would uh, frame it from a minority rights. Uh, viewpoint of, you know, you can be any type of minority within the Bitcoin ecosystem. And first of all, Bitcoin doesn't even know or care about your attributes. Um, but even if you're a like minority in the sense of like what you believe the rules of Bitcoin should be, you know, in the, the, the actual governance of the system, you also, you don't have at least the same threshold of uh, rug pull risk. It's it's not a like fifty one percent risk uh, of the the rules being changed. It's more like ninety nine percent of the ecosystem would have to agree to change the rules uh, without your consent. But you know, it, it's also it's difficult to quantify. But roughly, it's it's more. Um, <sighs> I, I hate to use the word fair because that can be you know, a trigger word as well, but the governance of Bitcoin, I can I best describe it as um, instead of being a system where you just have to get the slight majority of people to agree to a change, and and thus you know the changes can be a lot more fickle and unpredictable, which is basically the way most uh, you know, Western democracies seem to work these days. Rather, the the incentives and the game theory around the system that we call Bitcoin is one such that a change is incredibly unlikely to go through and get enacted and get in- adopted unless it is not harming people and it. it it is, you know, objectively good for at least some substantial portion of the user base, but it is especially important that you know there's no uh, strong and and logical uh, objections to like why a change would harm a portion of the community. So you could call that conservative in a sense, like the protocol changes itself are fairly conservative, uh, but I see it as a sort of a security and sort of defense mechanism that um, it highly weights uh, not breaking anything for anyone who is a historic user of the system. Yeah, no, I I completely agree with that. And I think 
to pivoting a little bit, you know, one, one of the things I want to bring up, I, you know, there could be some people that subscribe to the New York Times and, you know, from, from this, this podcast and one of the more public things that was probably released about you or most kind of mainstream was that article that came out in 2019 that talked about, you know, you're, you're, you know, talking about the, the protocol and things like that, but also, you know, privacy and things like that. Um, so you had a, an article that came out, uh, I think it was 2019, talking about um, privacy and some of the steps you went through almost as an exercise. And again, kind of the same question, why should, why should people care about that? Why should people care about privacy? And uh, how did that interview come about? Um, and for those that don't know, there's this, there's this article, I might link it in the show notes as well, um, where Jameson described the steps to kind of erase yourself. Is that a good way to put it? Um, from, from, uh, being found and ultimate privacy and trying, trying that out. So describe that a little bit and why people should also care about that. Yeah. So this is another result of technology really changing some of the incentives of, of other systems. And in particular, uh, what happened to me was uh, I kind of rose in prominence on social media during the scaling debates and during sort of my early years of being full-time working in this space. And so I went from being uh, a nobody with a thousand followers to being uh, someone with you know, hundreds of thousands of followers. And this sort of kicks off a, a law of large numbers in, in terms of audience and that you know, if you have enough people paying attention to you, it's inevitable that one or more of them will be unhinged or will be you know, willing to do things that you would consider uh, illogical or not nice. Uh, so I would say I am, I am generally an optimist uh, or have a positive outlook on humanity in the sense that I believe that the vast majority of people are quote unquote good and they don't want to hurt other people, at least, um, you know, not obviously, um, not directly. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why you know, democracy or democratic republics, I think, work generally okay. Um, unfortunately, with technology, you know, some of the repercussions and sort of attack and defense um, games have really changed. And, and so this is, it's not dissimilar to what celebrities have had to deal with uh, ever since you know, mass media became a thing. And you know, if you have millions of people paying attention to you, for example, you'll probably have some stalkers. Uh, now, what has changed is that the sort of level of fame, if you will, required to hit that uh, threshold of risk is much lower and, is, and it can happen much, much faster. So basically the point being, even though I'm not a celebrity, I'm this like niche micro celebrity in this one particular sector, it exploded, you know, within a year or so. And I was not prepared to defend myself against these potential attackers. So I ended up having my entire neighborhood shut down by a SWAT team because somebody who I pissed off decided to leverage their technological skills to be able to place an anonymous phone call to my local law enforcement. And then essentially, I would almost call it, you know, hacking the, the rules of law enforcement 
by using the appropriate trigger words that they knew would create the ultimate lethal response and and get you know dozens of highly and heavily armed guys out uh, you know surrounding my house so basically they said i had killed people and had a bunch of guns and explosives and was holding hostages and all of this and of course meanwhile i was just at the gym completely unaware of what was going on until i tried to get back into my neighborhood and uh was told that there was a you know armed uh, person uh, threatening and uh, it took us a little while to figure out that i was supposed to be that armed person <laughs> but uh you know that was it, it in that particular incident ended as well as it could have but it could have ended with me dead uh because i do have firearms and i could have ended up being shot by the police as several people who were swatted over the past few years have been shot and killed and they were innocent victims so you know, what, what had happened here is that in this particular case, we once again have this massive asymmetry in the sense uh, that someone who has the right skills for you know, less than $10 can have hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of basically military hardware and personnel deployed against a specific target. And they can do so without putting themselves in any physical danger whatsoever. There's this massive disconnect between the sort of resource cost and the risk. And, and so you know, swatting has become a bigger and bigger problem, at least in America. And there's a lot of other reasons behind that that we don't need to go into and I don't think would surprise people. But that basically is what triggered me to go onto this whole privacy adventure to figure out, okay, what is the cost for me to be able to defend myself against these type of attacks? And the short version is tens of thousands of dollars and probably a uh, hundred plus hours of, of effort of understanding what both the technical and, and legal options are for protecting your privacy so that people can't target you. you with, with this article, um, how, how did that come about actually? How did, how did, um, did the New York Times reach out to you? Was there like a reporter? Like how, how, how was that started that that conversation even happened? Yeah, well, like pretty much everything I've done for the past decade, I'm, I'm constantly researching and I have weird hobbies. Um, and, and so whenever I undertake a new research project, I don't do it secretly. Like I, I basically write down my process and I try to, I think of it as like forging a new path and trying to leave, you know, breadcrumb trails for other people who are interested to follow me. So I spent a year doing the research and, you know, implementing all of this. And then I ended up publishing, you know, one of my like 30 page uh, articles about everything that I had done. And then, you know, gave some keynote presentations and so on and so forth. So um, I think that was Nathaniel Popper, uh, the journalist who, you know, he had been paying attention. And eventually it was like, hey, let's you know, do a, a short synopsis article on all of this. And uh, you know, so far, so good. I, I, did, I implemented all of that in 2018, and uh, it's been five years so far. There have been one or two minor leaks, and I've, I've had to you know, learn and redo a few things as a result. But it, it really does become a, a lifestyle. And so there's a really, really high bar to get to the level that I wanted to, but once you get there, it's not too difficult to maintain. Do you, you know, in, in terms of um, 
reasonable privacy that you would advocate for folks? What are what are some of those those things that you would advocate if someone is zero zero knowledge privacy zero? Maybe they're you know kind of like me when I started to get into Bitcoin. Then you start learning about privacy. Then you start learning about open ledger, right? Which is good, but also how do you want to? And then it, you go down that that rabbit hole. So where should fun, some people start in their privacy journey, if you will, um, that are some of the, you think the most important things if we're looking to the next five, 10 years? Yeah, I think very few people will go to the effort of trying to maintain your physical location privacy. But uh, you can spend a weekend and just vastly improve your day to day internet privacy, you know, install some decent ad blockers so that you can be safer from some of the corporate surveillance that happens as you're just browsing around the web. Um, you know, perhaps switch to a more private email uh, company that's not going to be scanning all of your information and trying to use it to sell stuff to you. Uh, installing a VPN client so that you know your ISP can't be spying on you. Um, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit that only takes a, a few hours to implement, and it doesn't really cost anything because most of the software and services out there are free. It wasn't really until I got to the legal aspect of you know trying to create trusts and corporations and actually hide um, my physical um, property. So the things like real estate, vehicles, driver's license, those are the things where you, you end up spending an order of magnitude more resources trying to figure out how to protect. And you know, very few people are going to do that. But if you ask me, like, why should someone do that? This kind of goes back to how technology has really changed the game. And there are numerous examples of this now. But essentially, you can go from being a nobody to being somebody who has the ire of millions of people directed at them. And th this happens all the time. You know, s some random person on a social media site may post something and maybe they only have a few hundred followers. But if you post the right combination of words at the right time, then you can quote unquote go viral. And if you go viral on something that is a, you know, politically sensitive issue, you can very easily piss off tens of millions of people. And then within that subset of tens of millions of people, there may be a few who try to track you down and try to screw with you somehow. I, I've personally started to think about that more. Again, just having a little bit more followers coming at and into Bitcoin from a cultural spe uh, perspective and sociological perspective, which I want to get into you. And you know, my general tendency is not to block people, not do any of that unless it's a personal attack against me or my family. There has been some of those. And it's made me think more about those steps, about my physical location, about disclosing if and when I'm going to a meetup. Uh, you know, some things that are very Bitcoin friendly that we want to advertise. Um, it's made me think twice about that. And I can't imagine than having you know 500,000 followers, whatever it is you are, and, and your voice in the space, and some of the other more political things specific to crypto and Bitcoin that, that you might hold that might piss some people off. Um, so it's made me think about that. And it's just one of those unfortunate realities of, of the world we're in. That's a much harder issue to address, is the 
this sickness of why would people do that? Why would people swat your house? Why would people do that? Those are on the rise. But like you said, there's a lot of companies and a lot of protocols, open source stuff that is also on the rise. That's getting easier and easier. Like it's it's easier now than it was two years ago to access a lot of these things, whether it's in Bitcoin or privacy. So that's that's really cool. But even just me experiencing a little bit, I, I had to take a step back and say, oh, I, I really have to think about what I'm putting out there. Like, oh, that picture has something in the background that says what restaurant I might be at or what. So it's made me think more. And again, I, it, there's a balance, right? Because I also, you know, have friends or family members that can go in the opposite direction where if you live your life in daily fear, that's also not a way to live. So it's it's tough. And there's always a bit of I hate using the word compromise, but there is. And I think everyone has to ask that question for themselves. What is that compromise? Because you can live as physically off the grid and not have human connections be in a bunker type of compromise. Or how do you live in daily life, go about your life, understanding there's risk, understanding I could go out today and something bad could happen. This is why I went to the extreme level of effort. You know, I had family and friends who were like, why did you do all of this? You could have just you know, deleted your Twitter, deleted your, your presence. And I'm like, yeah, I, I could be the mountain man who you know, cut off all communication with the world. And as a result, I you know, diminish my attack surface because I'm not, quote unquote, leaking information anymore that this is what we do but you know we are humans we are social creatures we do strive uh to have connections and interactions and for me i felt like my job was not done i still have a lot to contribute to this ecosystem and uh you know i another thing i could have done of course is to come back as a pseudonym but then i wouldn't be able to go to the the physical meetups and conferences and stuff um and and I had already spent, you know, six years building my reputation. I didn't want to have to throw it all away and start over again from scratch. So, you know, this this was a uh, a compromise for me, a, a trade off of saying, you know, if I want to continue to be able to contribute in the way that I have, then I need to invest a lot more resources in basically increasing my defensive posture. I also like asking almost every guest, depending on what they're they're working on, like what what do you think is your intrinsic motivation for wanting to help and build? And I get the sense that you're doing a lot of this because you deeply care about people in the world. And then your avenue is as a technologist, cypherpunk, whatever way you want to describe yourself or others might. What do you think is your intrinsic motivation? Whether that was like, oh, since a kid or my family or for me, even uh, growing up religious, there's some of that that stayed with me um, that I think has been good in terms of like, I want to try to help the world. So what for you is the main motivator? You know, you might say, oh, I like working on this, but the intrinsic, like, I want to help humanity. Where where do you think that motivation comes from? I actually think that there's a decent amount of it is is kind of a uh, an an issue that could be traced back to my childhood in the sense that like I was the nerdy outcast who got bullied a lot as a child. Um, and I do, I really regret like not pushing back on that more at the time. And so I, I do have a, I re, I get really triggered by any time I see, uh, you know, people basically being victimized by any sort of authority or power, and so like one of the things that, that really motivates me is uh, empowering individuals slash you know, disempowering 
large concentrations of power. So you know, when I learned about Bitcoin, when I started learning more about money, because I, like most people, didn't really understand the mechanics of money uh, back in the day, I, I saw very quickly you know, what the massive abuse of power this was, that you know, money is this concept that it shouldn't belong to anyone. It belongs to humanity. It should be a collective agreement amongst us all of what money is and how we use it and what its properties are. And so the idea that you know, money is basically defined by a small group of not even elected people you know, who mainly convene behind closed doors and, and use uh, these arcane processes that uh, a bunch of people try to prognosticate about, it just rubs me the wrong way. And, and so in general, you know, whenever I can distribute power more, and, I, and, and like I said, I think using my skills as a technologist to help uh, distribute power more is really the most effective way that I can contribute to the system. So you, know, you could call it fairness, uh, I guess, but really I, I think that we have the potential to reshape the world, reshape many aspects of the world more than just money, but you know, even many aspects of society and how we interact with each other through technology. And anyone who's paying attention can see that there is, there's massive friction between the you know, traditional powers that be and all of these new technologies and the, the ways that they could change the world and could change uh, the way that the masses basically coordinate with each other. So I kind of going back to governance, I see, like I said, that you know, the hierarchical and bureaucratic systems of governance are completely logical. It's, it, it makes complete sense that this is how humanity has evolved civilization. But I believe we're at an inflection point now where we have the ability to change our coordination mechanisms and basically create new coordination mechanisms that are not as fragile and are not as prone to abuse because they're you know, more open, transparent, and distribute power further than the uh, existing systems. And I want to give you credit too. I think you're more than a technologist in the sense of your your articles and writings. And if people haven't explored, uh, you know, link your website, which I think you have most, if not all of your your articles there. Um, you know, great writer, great. Um, you analyze people, and you know, my background is in sociology, and I think you're kind of at least an amateur sociologist, if if not more than that. Uh, it's one of my favorite things to talk about and focus on. And for me, that's my gift and, and eyes is on that realm. So for me, I resonate with a lot of your your writings. I'm getting more into the technology stuff since getting into Bitcoin, but my background is philosophy, sociology, political theory. So, you know, one thing I wanted to comment on, again, why I feel the need to even host this podcast, write things that I do talk about progressive issues in Bitcoin is because I don't think there's enough content targeted at a mainstream or left-leaning audience in terms of of Bitcoin and in terms of some of the other things that are important to Bitcoin or the other issues in the world. So I want to talk about your, uh, you know, history of Bitcoin maximalism article. What made you want to write that? Um, what was your focus on that? And, 
you know, maybe not to connect it too much to your childhood, but there is a bit of bullying in a way that you probably experienced that people have experienced in the space, you know, whether it was uh, Casa taking on Ethereum, right, or um, any of the other kind of Bitcoin maximalist takes. Or for you, what was your motivation in that? I thought it was a brilliant article, um, you know, referenced it in something that I wrote. And um, yeah, just wanted to, to touch on that and talk about that. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I've been canceled more times than I can count at this point. But also, you know, that sort of goes along with the the game, you know, law of large number of, of audience. Uh, it's it's not possible to please everyone. And and really what happens or what you see occur as you grow an audience is I don't think I talked about this in the article because it's kind of tangential, but uh, your audience has a mental model of you. And this perception is based upon what you selectively choose to reveal to the world. And it's basically inevitable that over a long enough period of time, if you have a large enough number of people who have built various mental models of you, you will then eventually do or say something that breaks that mental model. And for some people, you know, they'll be moderate. They'll be like, oh, okay, I didn't know that. I'm going to adjust my mental model of, of, of this person. But other people, they just can't handle it. They're like, you have betrayed me. You know, I thought that you were, you know, a pure Bitcoiner or a real Bitcoin maximalist or whatever. Uh, so you know, that is a sort of uh, somewhat amusing, but also disappointing thing to see from people. But I've, I've, I've seen these patterns happen uh, so many times over the years. And um, I've seen this evolution of certain uh, sets of beliefs in the space and, and also um, a sort of fracturing of the community that I felt like this is not unique. You know, we have seen plenty of historical examples of this. And, you know, this is this, this could be tied to politics. This could be tied to any number of types of human organizations. I think that there is something inherent to uh, human organizations, at least in like belief systems, that once again, as the as the system grows, you know, orders of magnitude of people who are quote unquote uh, subscribing to a set of beliefs that it's also inevitable that there will be schisms and there will be fracturing within those communities as they sort of grow too large and can no longer uh, really stay in complete consensus with each other. So, you know, obvious example, of course, religion. Uh, you know, many major religions have many different uh, uh, subsects of, uh, of different, slightly different beliefs uh, that uh, have you know caused massive rifts, and you know I think a lot of the stuff that happens in Bitcoin is is kind of like governance and politics and other sociological mechanisms, but on steroids. You know everything is happening, you know ten or a hundred times faster than it than it may have happened you know a thousand years ago. So it is it, it is fascinating to watch. Um, I, I do have the technological background and the technology is what I have focused on a lot, but definitely the, the sociological aspects of this ecosystem have been one of the greatest surprises to me, one of the most fascinating things to observe. 
And, you know, unfortunately, it's not my specialty. I am cert- certainly an amateur, uh, but I do try to observe and report and, uh, and try to explain at least as well as I can exactly what has happened over the years and how have the different major groups and belief systems within the ecosystem evolved and and where are we today? And I think one of the major takeaways is that much like in politics, there is a very loud minority of extremists And I think the moderates are generally quiet and get overlooked. And so because of my prominence in the the ecosystem, I I just want to try to get it out there that the the extremists do not represent us. Well, in fact, you know, nobody represents anyone other than themselves in this system. It's not a democracy. Uh, But uh the relatively small number of people on some social networks that espouse more uh, vitriolic views, it's actually a tiny minority of the total user base. And you don't have to pay attention to them if you don't want to. Yeah, I don't take issue with if there's an account that's tweeting. And again, you know, I talk about Twitter and social media, and I'm like, okay, it's, it's whatever. But also in terms of Bitcoin, Twitter is the place where people go for for resources, right? Or they can see different articles of, you know, whatever about about Bitcoin that's usually FUD or it's a specific tech sector type thing. So they go to Twitter. But in terms of, you know, on Twitter, if there's someone, a lot of the the garbage you'll see are kind of hate or toxic masculinity or toxic masculinity and toxic <laughs> maximalism, <laughs> um, it, you know, they might have three or 400 followers, right? trolling accounts. Yeah. It's a human conditional thing. The issue I take is when there is a prominent Bitcoiner that has a massive following, that is a voice in the space that if you type in Bitcoin, they could come up on YouTube or they could come up on Twitter saying things that has nothing to do with Bitcoin. And they mm-hmm. say their sole focus is Bitcoin education. And again, I do not care people's views. I am a progressive, but much in the libertarian sense of like, you do you just don't hurt people. That's usually my starting point with this. And I think for most progressive Bitcoiners, because if we're progressive, we're also Bitcoiners. And that comes with that comes with something else. So I take issue more with um, with that. And the biggest thing for me is people can say all they want that Bitcoin is apolitical. Bitcoin doesn't care. But the reality is the mainstream population and politics as it is today, they do care about image. They do care about perception. We can say, oh, just ignore it. And I, I agree with what you're saying on that point. And I think that's what we should advocate for. But slowly we're turning the tide. When someone types in Bitcoin or looks at Bitcoin, they're seeing a bit more just on Bitcoin or they're seeing a bit more like Jason Myers, a progressive's case for Bitcoin, where they see things articulated in a way that they might be able to understand from their language, right? We shouldn't have to do those things, right? But for the time being, there's a huge amount of hate and FUD from the left. There's a huge amount of political cheerleading from the right of demagogues, I I would personally believe, from the Republican Party using Bitcoin as a tool to get votes when I don't buy that. I don't think we should buy any politician's word on Bitcoin. You know, don't trust verify. So, and again, like you said, it's completely flipping the model on its head as well in terms of Bitcoin. It's like, it's not democratic, but it's fair, but we don't have a mental model for it in general. So yeah, my biggest thing is like, you know, this perception stuff does matter like it you might say it shouldn't but it does and i think you've articulated that really well too and 
in the Maxi article and just understanding the history of all of this is is really important and really fascinating. It, it is. Yeah. So, you know, what do you do about it? Um, so I know I said ignore. Um, you know, I think once again, if we look at this from a numbers perspective, what I would advocate is, yes, we actually we should ignore the the vitriolic people um i i mute and block vitriolic people um i don't want them in my feed i don't i don't even want to be tempted to engage with them because i think that if you engage with them you're feeding them you know don't feed the trolls right so but you can't be silent either because that is what results in what you were mentioning where you know people search for bitcoin and they find the people who are perpetually online uh, spewing all of this nonsense uh instead what you have to do is you have to realize that the moderates greatly outnumber the extremists so what the moderates need to do is they need to keep uh publishing moderate educational content you know you have to be the future that you want to see and i think that if that happens like if the moderates stop just being silent and being afraid of being attacked by the extremists you know this is the internet if they attack you you block them or mute them right you don't have to worry about getting punched in the face at like a political rally or something so i i do encourage people to uh not be silent because you're afraid that someone will, will be mean to you. Uh, it does require a, a bit thicker skin. Um, I probably have some of the thickest skin uh, out there because of of all of the abuse that I have uh, suffered over the years uh, on the internet. But at this point, when someone says something extremely hateful to me, I just take pity on them. Like I'm, you know, I'm. I feel sad that like this is your life that you're you're spewing hate all day long. And, um, and so that, that's the mute list for me, but it's, um, it's, it's a type of problem where we do need people to be more active and, uh, and out there and engaging with each other. Otherwise, you know, it's it, once again, like politics, you know, the people who drum up the votes are the ones who are going to win. Now, I do think the, uh, politi- pol- politicization of Bitcoin is absurd um, it's ridiculous to me that it seems to be all Republicans that are saying positive things about this space. And, um, I do have a project where I'm actually tracking, uh, you know, don't trust verify, uh, you know, all of these politicians, uh, they have to disclose their finances, right? So I have a site where I track the politicians and I'm like, you have a right. publication as well. What was that outlet through? Was it was that recent in the last year or two where you also said kind of putting your money where your mouth is? Let's see what. And I, I don't know if that one was super recent, um, but I did see that where you're, you're tracking that. So is that the same project or is this different? Yeah, that's my like Bitcoin politicians uh, project. I've got a, you know, a GitHub page with it. And the only downside is that it's really, really onerous to go through all of the financial filings because most of them are still filing scanned PDFs. So you can't even search for it. You literally have to read through like tens or hundreds of pages of stuff. And, you know, suffice to say, even the majority of politicians who say good things about Bitcoin don't actually own any, which makes me doubt whether or not they truly believe what they're saying. And, and of course, you know, on, on the opposite end of the spectrum, it's, um, it's unfortunate and disconcerting that it, it seems like the, the liberal 
platform position on Bitcoin mostly seems to be uh, spurred on by ESG arguments. And that's, I hold the firm belief, and I guess this was more controversial as well for some reason. I do hold the firm belief that it's only a matter of time. These narratives will shift. My my argument is I personally believe Bitcoin's going to win regardless. It's just, will it be an easier fight? Is there ways we can you know, work together on these things and help advance this so that can help people and help our system even sooner. Yes, I think so. So I think in the end, you know, BlackRock's a perfect example. Like, again, that's a whole nother conversation, but which we can we can even touch on, but completely flipping the narrative there, whether that's good or bad. For me, that's the Trojan horse theory of like Bitcoin can be used for everyone by everyone. If that if BlackRock is your enemy, which in large parts, you talk about Occupy, you talk about the left, anarchical, that, that is a type of enemy or those institutions, um, they're, they're going to get into Bitcoin. It's only a matter of time um, until, same thing with Democrats, you'll, you'll see some sort of narrative start shifting or they'll kind of like take an L, kind of like the mm-hmm. SEC might take a loss on some things mm-hmm. and then they'll start to ramp up, you know, they're, they're talking about it um, in certain ways. Just like I think Apple will integrate at some point the Lightning Network. I firmly believe that. People are like, that's the opposite to Apple's. And I'm like, okay, but like it's, it's, it's going to be the standard for the world in one way or another. Like whatever that standard looks like, whether it's just international trade or whether it's actually our peer-to-peer money, you know, here in the United States in the next five years, I think that is all coming. So again, I think that that shift is already starting and there's a lot of people out here and I'm trying to as well to, to fight for that to happen sooner rather than like, oh, you get Bitcoin at the price you deserve. I'm like, that I hate that rationale. I, I really do. Um, yeah. For some people, <laughs> I would like that personally. I'd be like, yeah, like, you know, screw you. Like you get Bitcoin at the price you deserve or you're benefiting from this current system. But in general, I think it's coming. Um, but I think there's ways we can make this transition easier, if you will, and more in- inclusive to use that that word as well. Yeah, that actually reminds me of my least favorite Satoshi quote, which is the oh, one where he that? says, "If uh, if you if you, if don't, you don't get, get it, it I, don't I don't have time." Yeah, and people use yeah. that all the time, and it's so um, I don't know. I think it's stuck up to say that as mm-hmm. if your time is is worth Satoshi's time. Yeah, right. right. It's one thing for Satoshi to say it, and it's yeah, yeah. That, that's that's really true. Um, that that's so funny. I I want to make sure also to get to, you know, we're talking about mainstream stuff. Um, you know, you're involved with Casa, which I think is a great, a great company. I've also been using Casa as well and would, would highly recommend in terms of um, normal people accessing Bitcoin cold storage. I, I think it's one <laughs> really, really great, great way to use it. Um, so what is it like? And what are your thoughts on just building a, because also people are like, oh, you know, for-profit businesses or businesses, we're about open protocols, which you can have open protocols with businesses, but just having businesses, having some people from the left would be like, that's just private wealth entering into Bitcoin and messing everything up. And there's the the whole gambit from a private business creating Bitcoin products all the way to BlackRock Bitcoin ETF, right? Some people conflate the two. But for you, where do you strike that balance in terms of having a a business, a, a fiat business in some ways, a, a business in the, the world of that governance engaging with, with Bitcoin. Um, what, are your, what are your thoughts on that? And what some of the Ethereum stuff aside, what do you think are some of the pros and cons to that kind of approach versus just an, just an open source, all hands on deck as if they're 
you know, Bitcoin core developers just kind of working on it in their free time. Yeah, I mean, they're very different models. And uh, it is, it's especially weird to see uh, some pushback in the space from people who they almost seem like anti-capitalists. Uh, you know, it, it's really weird to be in a space that hinges on you know, freedom and then seeing people come along and say, oh, it's like immoral for you to be running a business and, and trying to you know, create profit as a result. I mean, profit is a motivator. Uh, it, it motivates you know, at many different levels. And I think the, the short version is that you know, when you're running a, like a venture capital funded business, one of the main differences is that you are motivated to work hard and work quickly because you, you have a, a timeline and you know, you're burning money. Uh, you basically, you take on debt, you know, you sell equity and, uh, you, you know, venture firms will speculate, uh, as to, you know, the risk involved with that. And, and you basically, you're, you're putting pressure on yourself. You're putting yourself on the clock and you're saying, you know, we have to be able to create value in a short period of time here. And if we don't, you know, we fail and, and it all falls apart. The, the flip side of that doing sort of either, you know, bootstrapped or just free open source, uh, organization type of stuff is that it's, um, it's less fragile in the sense that, you know, you're not under the gun, uh, but also you don't have the same level of motivation. And so, you know, people may come and go, it's, it's harder to incentivize, um, you know, stable, you know, committed, uh, development of people contributing to the project. If you don't have, if you don't have, a you know, a, a, a pool of funds to actually be paying people salaries. Uh, this was something that, you know, even like Bitcoin protocol development struggled with for many years because there were, there were, there's no, there's no aspect of the Bitcoin protocol that creates uh, funding for development of Bitcoin. Whereas a number of these other protocols, you know, many of which may arguably be unregistered securities, they do, you know, have you know treasuries for that protocol, and they can fund themselves. So, you know, I see it as it's it's more of just a uh, a funding and incentive model, and of course, it's it's not guaranteed that it's going to succeed. But I think that it is it's required if you want to compete, uh, because if you know if nobody in the Bitcoin ecosystem was doing for profit businesses then I can pretty much guarantee you that a bunch of people in other crypto protocols and ecosystems will be doing that and they will have more capital. They will be able to uh, advance and develop the infrastructure and software and, uh, and really just the usability of their systems at a far greater pace. So I, don't know, I, I think it's, it's important just from a competition standpoint. And it's also good that we have a variety of, of aspects to build from. So, you know, while CASA itself is not an open source project, we use open source projects as the foundation of you know, what we're building on top of. And this helps us to create a system where even though CASA is a company, we can architect it so that CASA is not a single point of failure. 
speaking of protocols and funding, um, Noster. So I love Noster. I want to talk about Noster more on this podcast in general with guests. Um, so Noster is one such protocol where there's a lot of clients, you know, virtually little companies, if you will, depending on what the, the client is. And again, technologically, it doesn't exactly work this way. But for those listening that don't know about Noster, one of the easiest ways I relate it to people at a 30,000 foot view is you have email and you have many different email services. You have Gmail, you have Outlook, you have Yahoo, you have whatever. Those are kind of like the clients. But again, that's a centralized version. So once you pull on that thread, that's not exactly how it works. But you know, Noster is, is email. It's also a way of messaging and email. But Noster has one of those things right now that I see is a problem is funding and increasing more long-term funding for Noster. Uh, for me, I think it could be like Bitcoin in the sense that you know, the Bitcoin protocol, you mentioned funding was an issue. More for-profit companies, private companies, public companies, whatever were generated, then they started investing funding in the protocol because it benefits them and, and vice versa. Do you see Noster heading in that same direction? Would you advocate for more actually incorporated businesses um, being built as like clients that utilize Noster? And talk about that because I know you you love Noster as well and have talked about that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think that will happen. Uh, and I think there will be a lot of overlap. I bet you that what we'll see is a number of the like Bitcoin and crypto focused venture capital firms will start uh, putting you know, checks into quote unquote Noster businesses, um, at least in part because it is so tightly integrated with Lightning Network. I think it's, it's sort of a natural uh, evolution. And this actually goes back to you know what I said about 30 minutes ago of um, my belief that you know, these technologies are enabling uh, new ways of uh, coordinating society. That's actually how I see Noster, is that uh, it is, it's a decentralized message bus. Now, that doesn't mean anything to the non-technical people who are watching this, uh, but uh, essentially, you can think of it as you can almost think of it as like the cloud, you know, where in reality, the cloud is tens of millions of machines and very complex configurations. But if you just think of it as one logical thing, uh, the cloud is just like a, a hard drive that you can remotely you know, put files on and you don't have to worry about all of the, the minutia of how it's operating. Similarly, Noster is a, uh, a place where you can just put messages and anyone can then uh, see them and reply to them, interact with them. And you know, under the hood, there's a lot of different servers, and you know, there's a whole protocol. Uh, but at the end of the day, that allows you to have a new way of coordinating with other humans. Now, the first application of that was basically Twitter clones, um, but we've even seen stuff of using this decentralized message bus for coordinating playing games with people like chess we actually had a, uh, a team of client um, or a team of casa engineers at a hackathon recently that created a project they called munster which is a way of coordinating multi-sig wallets uh, and basically you know having three or five or however many people you want all using the same wallet. And when you're then um, coordinating, setting up the wallet and uh, creating and signing the transactions, all of that data is actually happening through the, the Noster network. So you know, that's, 
just uh, a couple examples of how now like any any time where there is a human coordination problem and doing that coordination through a centralized or trusted third party could create a choke point or a you know, potential for censorship now we have this alternative way of of coordinating and sharing messages that is far more robust and as a result you know this is a this is basically like a new primitive uh, aka like a new low level type of technology that you could bolt onto and build on top of many many different things so it's you know exciting to see as a technologist you know noster is the protocol even is what maybe 2 years old two and a half technically yeah. and then you know i joined onto a client and i like and advocate damas again apple stuff another conversation mm-hmm. um because also damas to me has the most mainstream look and feel of a social media Twitter. Um, the others are, are getting better as well. And I think Damas has gotten some pretty good funding as well um, that, that we'll see long term. But do you think Twitter will incorporate Nostra? Do you see that as inevitable in the way that Bitcoin might be inevitable to some circumstances? Because also when I talk to my friends on the left about you know using Twitter, using whatever, and again, Twitter is where things are still happening. So I'm still reluctantly using it. The podcasts were still reluctantly using it, that kind of thing. But I'm trying to pull more people over. Do you see Twitter using it? Sometimes I talk to people on the left. I'm like, listen, we all hate Elon for different reasons. Um, from the left, you know, you know, billionaire wealth, greed, all of this stuff, um, censorship in weird ways, you know, working with foreign governments to censor, even though he's free speech, all of this stuff is. Do you see Twitter utilizing Noster? And also, what is your selling point for Noster to mainstream folks that don't know anything about it? Yeah, well, this is almost like the uh, you know politics and governance argument again. Is that you know when you when you ask you know what will Twitter do, what we're really saying is what will Elon do? <laughs> and Elon can be unpredictable. And and like you said, like I even though he talks the whole you know free speech maximalism thing is he's very hypocritical about it like elon is not jack jack has said on numerous occasions that he, he greatly regrets creating twitter as a company instead of as a protocol and jack has put his money where his mouth is and is funding you know not only noster but also blue sky and you know he seems to care more about those fundamental issues so it is kind of interesting, though, that I think Meta is now dipping their toes into uh, Mastodon uh, and, and using the uh, ActivityPub protocol there. And that has created an insane amount of drama in the Mastodon ecosystem about whether or not they're going to you know, defederate their instances from the Meta Mastodon instance and so on and so forth. But um yeah, I, I don't. I think Noster is still way too early to get adoption from any of the big tech companies. It, it's going to need a lot more growth and investment uh, before I think it's taken seriously. Uh, you mentioned Blue Sky. Um, have you utilized Blue Sky much? What do you think of that? From my understanding, I know they're still a bit centralized at this point. They're working to decentralize and incorporate. Um, do you see it as two sides of the same coin as Noster? Do you specifically advocate for one uh, more than another? What are, or do you see it as just this is a good enterprise to experiment with? Uh, I kind of lump Blue Sky and uh, Mastodon into the same bucket because what we're really talking about is you know, federated instances. Right. And um, Mastodon. Because it seems is much... more people on the left 
Blue Sky, at least my, uh, and I don't interact with it much. Um, I have a Blue Sky account for this podcast to just try to reach different audiences. It's a very overwhelmingly left audience in terms of what I'm mm. seeing with that as an opposition to Twitter. They're like, okay, on Twitter, we feel that it's, that particular audience feels that it's it's just more right wing and free of speech in that regard. Uh, you know, again, their opinion. <laughs> um, so they turn to Blue Sky as the safe place for the left. That's the way that's the way I've seen it. And that's the way it's characterized as well. Um, so so I've seen that. So, yeah, I was curious your thoughts on Blue Sky. Um, yeah, I, I don't think it's going to end well. And the reason that I say that is because of the drama that we've already seen happen uh, numerous occasions on Mastodon. Uh, more recently, uh, it's it's been ramping up. But for example, uh, in the early days of the pandemic, I believe um, Rodolfo Novak, uh, head of CoinKite, created the Bitcoin Hackers Mastodon instance, and it had you know, thousands of people sign up for it. And if I recall correctly, a number of other large Mastodon instances chose to defederate from the Bitcoin hackers instance because they considered it, you know, quote unquote, right wing, you know, extremists, yada, yada, yada. And so, you know, this, you know, this is fine, I think, from a sort of voluntary, you know, coordination standpoint, you know, this is the freedom that the protocol allows. But we've seen that happening more and more often now. And Part of the problem with this federation and defederation stuff is that apparently with these protocols, at least with the ActivityPub protocol from Mastodon, when you defederate, you're basically severing all of the connections and all of the followers between the instances. And even if you refederate again an hour later, a day later, it doesn't recreate those connections. Uh, so it's it's a, a you know I think a massive point of fragility and politicization that is is not going to end well. And uh, as far as I know, Blue Sky basically works the same way in the sense that it's you know federated instances. Even though I'm not aware of many other uh, instances of that protocol running. But Nostra is different. And the reason that it's different is that you don't have an account on an instance. Like we like you do with Blue Sky or Mastodon, you are literally having to you know, go to their website and create a username and password. It is, it is a more traditional like web to experience, even though the protocol does afford you some portability in the sense that it is technically possible for you to move from one instance to another. I did that myself a year or two ago. Uh, I was on one of the big Mastodon instances and I was like, you know what? I don't want to get rug pulled. I'm going to run my own Mastodon node that I don't even let anyone else sign up for because uh, it's it's a terrible administrative thing to run one of these instances. It's, it's not very uh, highly performance software, but I'll run my own instance and that way no one can defederate me and, and I don't have to you know worry about uh, essentially losing my followers because they'll be following my instance directly. So on Noster, you know, you're not creating a login. You're not creating an entry in anybody's database. You're literally just generating a public private key pair. And then you're connecting to any number of arbitrary servers whenever you want to read data or write notes. 
And so while you still have the risk that any instance or any relay that you connect to is under no obligation to respond to your queries or to allow you to post notes to them, if they decide to do that, they can only affect their own relay. They cannot affect uh, your activity on other relays. And so the, the rug pull risk is basically zero as long as you have your clients set up so that you are um, you know, replicating and querying data across many different relays. And last thing on Noster, what do you think? So it seems Blue Sky took the approach of content moderation and legitimate legitimacy in that regard because people are used to that right they're used to like go on social media you can't just say everything you want because that's dangerous mm -hmm. or harmful or scary especially you know i'll say from folks on the left um you know the, the right there's different different things right um i think both sides do it in different ways but i'll talk from a progressive standpoint here so they took moderation more seriously if you will in in that regard Noster, they seem to be doing the opposite, where they're like, let's build up these relays, let's get this infrastructure rolling, let's play around with this, right? In a, in a, I guess, lack of a better word, like cypherpunk way, let's just build, roll out. It is still a bit of a Bitcoin chat room. You know, it's mm -hmm. getting less and less that. Um, how do you think Noster can handle content moderation? So obviously you mentioned like you can't be censored, right? You can jump to different relays. You can have multiple. I think I operate on like 14 different relays and it works pretty well, right? But also I'm not necessarily trying to just get canceled or reported. There are reporting mechanisms, right? And, it, you know, you can flag content. Um, but what do you think, how would you start to approach that? Because that's when I think you gather more legitimacy um, for Noster, the protocol and for clients, or should we even care? I guess is another question. No, we should care. Uh, you know, moderation is a fascinating topic uh, in and of itself. Uh, this actually goes back to, you know, I get triggered by abuse of power, right? And uh, especially during the scaling debates, uh, a number of moderators, especially on Reddit, uh, you know, triggered me and a bunch of other people because they just arbitrarily decided you can't talk about these things. Uh and you know they were allowed to do that because you know they control you know the subreddit that they're moderating. Um, I think that the issue of moderation, or at least the implementation of moderation, needs to be flipped on its head. So, once again, the problem is it's one of humans and fickleness and getting rug pulled. You know, if you have humans who are you know they're sitting basically as a, a middleman between the the deluge of content that is being published and then the the content that you are uh, consuming and they're trying to act as like a quality filter for that uh, then they're not always going to get it right uh, and and in some cases the you know difference in beliefs between the human moderators and you may clash so um, you know this is, this is not a, a perfect solution that can really be implemented right now, but my long-term vision for things like moderation, and I think this will apply to a number of different aspects of our lives and how we manage uh, these coordination mechanisms if we start using you know, less centralized coordination mechanisms, I think that what we really need is personal AI assistance. And what I mean by that is, uh, each of us knows 
what type of content we want to see and what type of content we don't want to see. And the problem right now is that either you have to do all of this moderation and curation manually, and I've spent countless hours on Twitter you know, manually cur- curating what I see, you know, what words get muted, um, what people I don't see uh, because I think that they are creating too much noise and not enough signal. And I do believe that you know if an AI was trained with enough data of my own personal content likes and dislikes that we could then you know replace these human moderators with our own personal client side filtering and that you know that is a way that we could we could still achieve what we want to achieve which is high signal low noise but do so in a way that's less prone to you know arbitrary censorship do you think there's any potential harm in that from a technology standpoint that can be done? And I, I do see that. that. That's a really interesting point. And I think that could very easily happen sooner than we think. What if someone's content preference is really bad, like not healthy, probably not good for them, not good for society as like human beings? How do we, how do we you know, live cohesively with each other, at least in the US, not to mention globally? It's a question I always ask in terms of this, because um, I am a from the left of freedom maximalist in theory, but then seeing there's a sickness. You can't really heal that through censorship, but you also can't heal that through open floodgates or, or whatever, whatever the opposite of that would be. Um, do you see downsides to that? How, how would you address that from a technology standpoint or, or would we? Yeah, this not? is sort of the, the trust and safety argument, right? Is that... Um, mm-hmm. I don't, I certainly don't have a solution for this, but this is an interesting sociological problem of, uh, I almost think of it as, you know, the internet now, it, it is not fulfilled the utopistic dreams of, um, you know, human society. We now have the sum of all human knowledge at our fingertips. Therefore, all of humanity that has internet access is enlightened and, you know, uh, logical and and makes better decisions as a result of access to this human knowledge, because the flip side of that, of course, is the disinformation, the misinformation, the um, the, the highly skewed and biased narratives uh, that get propagated. That is not something that I have a technological uh, answer for, um, and it you know, but once again, it's sort of a sociological phenomenon. Uh, you're kind of at least potentially asking like, how do we prevent people from getting stuck in echo chambers that then lead to extremism? Uh, you know, that would be very interesting to, to try to solve from a, a technical perspective, but I think that it is a result of, you know, the freedom that we are affording to people to, you know, curate their own content and, and really the fact that, you're programming yourself, right? And I think a lot of people don't recognize that, that you, know, you are what you eat and your, your brain is what the information that you consume is. So you know, may, some people might say, oh, we need sort of like health and safety labels and warnings on potentially dangerous content. But you know, that's a whole other slippery slope. So uh, 
it's an unfortunate uh, you know, downside to the communication age is that it's not just the information age, it's also the misinformation age. Yeah. Oh, I thought we were going to crack the code on that one, Jameson. All right. Um, yeah, because I think it starts with each individual has to want to live a good life and want to live the life that is that is healthy for them. And I think it starts there. And society's reaction, government's reactions on both sides have been, we are going to take that opportunity away from people and we're going to decide for them. And that clearly is not working. Yeah, um, I mean, I, it, I, it isn't. a kind of similar concept that I uh, definitely had crossed my mind recently is it would be incredibly helpful if you had you know, autonomous AI agents that were looking at the content that you consume and if they could tell that you're consuming something that's just flat out false, you know, just pop up with, you know, link me to the Snopes article or whatever, you know, link me to the uh, reputable source of information that shows that this is a lie and that you should not trust this source. You know, there, there's certainly, there's potential for that. But then ultimately the question is going to be, do you force that on people? You know, can people opt out of that? There's always, you know, this, this conflict of, uh, of freedom and safety. Uh, we're going to have to do a follow-up conversation because I've got a lot more thoughts to pull on that. Um, that's awesome. One one quick last question because it's one of my favorite notes, and I think you tweeted this as well, that you've ever done because I also love the show. But The Last of Us, season one, episode three. You And I looked it up again recently just to make sure. What, I think you said this was like one of the most beautiful episodes of television or something like that. Um, I I love Nick Offerman. I love Ron Swanson. In terms of just like a, I love Parks and Rec, and I make so many jokes about Ron Swanson as a as a Bitcoiner, and obviously he's a gold bug, and but he kind of lived out that character again in The Last of Us. And if people haven't seen the show, like it has nothing to do with what we're talking about really. But I love the show; I think it's great. Um, I, I didn't play the video game, but that episode was absolutely beautiful and amazing, and I love all the actors. So, so for you, what you you seem to really enjoy that, and um, and let the world know that you did. Yeah, um, you know, I I am a kind of a fan of like the uh, apocalypse porn genre, whether it's the zombie apocalypse or you know any number of dystopian uh, futures. Um, you know, the problem with a lot of them, of course, is is that in many in many cases there's unrealistic aspects of it. Uh, but I felt like that. Well, that series and and really that episode in particular, it was great because it, it showed some aspects of humanity that you know came through, despite all of the struggles that they were going through. And it, you know, I think it, it threw most people for a loop for what the, what you would generally expect from a sort of uh, a dystopian future television show. So, are you are you optimistic when you look out at our future as humanity with you're obviously talking about AI and uh, positive ways, which some people don't. Um, so you, you mentioned you're an optimistic person. I, I think you probably have an optimistic take just when you look out. But what, what's your take when you're looking at, out at the future of all of this as a technologist, as someone who cares about humanity as well and the things you mentioned? Um, you know, are you optimistic with where we're headed? Uh, it's a weird dichotomy. I am extremely optimistic on some things and extremely pessimistic on others. <laughs> and, uh, you know, from a sort of cosmological scale, I'm, I'm pessimistic that, that humans will get through the great filter event and that we won't, uh, essentially destroy ourselves uh, due to 
not having the ability to wield the power of the technology that we have developed. You know, there is reason to believe that there's a there's a, a good reason why we're not hearing any signals of intelligent life from anywhere else in the universe. And it's likely because if there was intelligent life elsewhere, they uh, destroyed themselves uh, too quickly. And, um, you know, that's oh, why so I, not in the way of like, oh, we want to stay away from them because they seem dangerous, but in the way of they've mm-hmm. already destroyed themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I've heard that before. That's interesting. Yeah, it's it's a it's a fairly common sort of astrophysics uh, slash philosophical question um, of, of like, can your civilization pass through this filter event? Uh, you know, we we have managed not to nuke ourselves to death yet, but of course, we're the the potential is still there. And as as someone who's focused on preventing single points of failures for eight years, you know, I see humanity as a single point of failure on the earth. So I do have some similarities with Elon Musk of wanting to get humanity on, you know, multiplanetary system just to reduce the potential for catastrophic loss. But, um, it's weird because I'm, you know, I'm optimistic that technology will continue to improve, the quality of life for people, or at least the potential is there. And that lots of people, we will continue to improve, for example, like medical technology and um, the, especially with AI now, like continue to reduce the amount of manual labor that humans need to do so that humans ought to be more free to follow pursuits that are sort of higher level type of work and more, more creative pursuits and do the things that humans are good at. But, you know, on the flip side, uh, I'm very pessimistic because I see that the incentives and human nature are such that humans prefer convenience over almost everything else. Uh, They prefer convenience over privacy, convenience over security. And this is an incentive issue because we always try to take the path of least resistance. And so one of the, I guess one of the ways that you could potentially try to engineer around that is by understanding that defaults are extremely sticky. So, you know, there is an entire area of research now when it comes to technology and the sort of second order effects of technology that I think were a big miss over the past few decades of, you know, we were just sort of careening headfirst into accelerating technological development without thinking through all of the edge cases of how this could affect society. Uh, So we, we have... I think the potential and the tools to better shape what is going to happen in the future. But I'm also pessimistic because the, the powers that be are not going to just hand over their power uh, to these other systems. Like there's definitely going to be a fight in a number of different ways. But you know, the, the fight for freedom is never over. It, it's something that must be constantly guarded against. I do my part by trying to make it easier for people to you know, be sovereign, at least within Bitcoin. And uh, over the long term, I expect I'll be helping people be sovereign in a, a number of different aspects of their lives as you know, cryptographic protocols and private key ownership and the technologies related to that offer more and more empowerment. But the question and the, the constant battle 
that's always going to be there is the fact that the centralized providers are probably always going to be more convenient. And at least for the foreseeable future, they're also the defaults. And that's what makes it a really uphill battle for us to fight against. So, you know, in the, in the example of like Bitcoin, one of the big problems is people come in and they buy on a centralized exchange and usually that's it. Uh, the, the very fact that you have to take action to withdraw to self-custody is a showstopper for a lot of people. So that's why I think one of the best things for actual Bitcoin adoption and self-custody is actually uh, pushing forward more circular economy so that people are actually working for and getting paid in Bitcoin. Awesome. Well, let's let's end things there. Um, we'll have to do this again because the number of things you said, I want to have another conversation on. Um, but but thank you so much. Is there anything else you wanted to mention, or you know, I'll put your website um, in the footnotes for people to go to because I think that that'll probably link up to most of the places you would want to send folks. But um, anything else you want to mention, or uh, anywhere else to to send people to if they're interested? Yeah, check out uh, Bitcoin.page. That that goes to my educational resources. And and really, that's what I tell people when they come to me and they're like, hey, should I invest in Bitcoin? My, my go-to is, well, you should invest in education. Go check mm-hmm. out all of these educational resources. Do your own research. Decide for yourself. Um, you know, I'm not a financial advisor. I can only tell you what the benefits of being in Bitcoin and self-custody are. Um, I'm not here, you know, for trading advice or to speculate on what's going to happen over any time frame with the purchasing power of this asset. Yeah. And if you're if you're someone on the left and you're looking for good information about why Bitcoin is good for humanity, why we care about this, why we care about privacy, I would high, highly recommend following along Jameson Law. Um, I think you do a great job of just focusing on signal, focusing on what's important. Um without some of the other noise that I think can be distracting, especially for folks on the left. So so thank you for that. Thank you for your contributions. Um, and thanks for jumping on. This was great. Yeah, great to be here and uh, see you soon. <laughs>